How's it going, everybody? This is Dan Fagella at The Sentient Potential. I'm lucky enough to be joined by Mr. Reno, who happens to be the founder and editor at anthrorobotic.com. Uh, he's a prolific writer in the domain of robotics and technology, as well as, uh, in my mind, the originator of what is uh, often referred to as technological smartassery, which is pretty cool stuff, too, if you get enough time to read his articles. Reno, how are you today? I'm very fine. How are you? Doing well, doing well. I'm glad to be able to catch up again. I as I mentioned before, I think I found you first on Lifeboat and got to reading a bunch of your stuff and saw that you were over in Japan for as long as you have been now, writing as much as you have been in as many different spots. And as mentioned before, one of the first topics that I thought would be really interesting to kind of delve into is your perspectives on the cultural differences on the emphasis, importance, and direction of technology in Japan, where you are now and have been for a while, as opposed to kind of back in the United States, um, just kind of from a broader perspective. Sure, sure. Um, it's, it's something I've always had a, a really strong interest in, and I came into uh, being involved here in Japan through intercultural and international language exchange. And, of course, you can't, you can't really divorce either of those from each other. So language is culture, culture is language. So given that as a background and sort of my, my ongoing science studies of, of technology in, in, in all realms, really, um, it sort of prepared me well to, to switch to thinking about technology full-time in that cultural context. And what you find, of course, when you work in, in international education and all that, you find that, you know, uh, it's it's sort of obvious, but you know, human beings are about eighty five percent exactly the same. But that little fifteen percent where culture <laughs> and language lie makes a huge uh, a huge difference. Um, with Japan in particular, you find Japan on the opposite ends of a lot of the same spectrum, uh, as opposed to the United States, of course, where, where I'm from. Um, and the, the the most profound difference that that you notice is the organization of of culture and in the U.S. we 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 have this illusion anyway of individuality and I think it's not entirely an illusion but we all like to believe that we're going to be superstars and self-directed heroes in the movie of our lives and uh, that's something we hold dear is, is individuality and it is a very it is a very important thing the Japanese on the other hand are much more concerned about group harmony and that's sort of a general uh, general concept that most people are aware with, that the Japanese are big on the whole yep. group thing. And that's very, very true. Um, the, the Japanese will are free to openly admit that. They don't see it as a, uh, as a drawback. You know, as Americans, we might think, oh, that's kind of robotic, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but to be so focused on the group when we're so much more individually focused. But when you look a little deeper, um, you can see that we're, we're both doing the same things in slightly different ways. So... As that res, uh, relates to technology, it creates some interesting sort of results. And, and one thing that comes to mind most immediately, and it's, it's been coming up a lot here in Japan, is uh, startups. Um, U.S. has more startups than you know probably the rest of the world combined and over again. Um, Japan has very very few startups, and, uh, and I'm speaking of you know technological startups, yep. not not making a bread store in the corner or whatever. But um, the, the sort of the corporate structure is such that um, things are laid out in a very Confucian way. You know, your pay and your prestige are based on your time spent, not necessarily necessarily your uh, your ability or 
ideas there, this, that, and the other. So not only is the mindset for starting up uh, for a tech startup not necessarily in place, that's compared to the United States, there's just no funding. You know, people mm-hmm. are interested in it. Uh, there are you know, people interested, but it's such a huge risk here, much more so than it is um, back in the States. Yeah. So that's a, a, a good example of where culture comes into play with, with technology, you know, speaking of startups in particular, whereas in the U.S., we're, we're very gung-ho about, you know, if you've got a great new idea, well, hey, maybe you can get some money for it and you can run with it. And um, in Japan, there's just not a whole lot of payoff for having a new idea and running with it. The value is put on, hey, I could I can start as an underling at Sony and then maybe I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll have a salary for life and in 25 or 30 years when I ascend to a higher position, then I can put my ideas in. And then I'm, of course, broadly generalizing, but I think it's fairly accurate and, and that creates sort of a different environment around, um, around tech startups. Huh. Um, and the, another area I would say is, is that it plays off the group think is, um, and it's also geography, of course. Um, the, quickly, uh, you know, Japan's about the size of California or Montana. And uh, because of the terrain, it's, it's only about 30% habitable. So you've got roughly 130 million people crammed into a space, a livable space, that's about 30% the size of California, which is extreme. Yes. So, yeah, what that means is, you know, culture and trends and things like that spread like wildfire. And, of course, you know, everyone has the Internet in their pocket and everyone has TV and all that. And it's, it's a highly, highly modern, modernized society, even out to the ends of rural areas. Uh, as we said before we started, I'm, I'm here in rural Japan now, but I have a, we're talking over a, a 4G mobile router. It's, it's very, it's almost as rural as Japan gets, yet I still have that service here. But the point I often use to illustrate this is um, smartphones. And oddly enough, Japan was way behind the rest of the world with smartphone adoption. Whoa. And a lot, a lot of that had to do, well, think about it. If Who makes the best smartphones in the world? right now and has for the past you know well since blackberry fell off who's made the best smartphones yeah apple's it's, apple are the folks yeah apple samsung uh motorola is in there a little bit and and, and blackberry's still struggling along but nobody wants nobody's clamoring for the latest sony or panasonic or sharp smartphone nope and the reason that is is because they totally missed the boat now the thing about Japan is it's 98% Japanese. Everyone's pretty much got this, the same shared history, the same shared culture. So the, the mobile phone market just sort of was woven into that. And even though 10, 12, 13 years ago, when I first came here, everyone had mobile internet. This is long before smartphones in the U.S. Of course, it was all textual. You know, there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, of uh, graphic interface going yeah. on. but. But everyone had mobile internet, so you know, for the longest time, that was you know the internet was your little phone, and, and it just never got any more complicated than that. Um, it got more advanced, relatively speaking, but as far as smartphones went, you know, when, when BlackBerry started to rise in the U.S. Um, beyond corporate customers and into uh, the, the broader market, you know, Japan was still doing their, you know, you wouldn't call them dumb phones, but they were they were <laughs> not. <laughs> they were not smartphones. They were, they were highly advanced dumb phones and very culturally specific. 
And how, do, so, how do you mean culturally specific? It's kind of interesting. Well, what I mean by that is that um, given Japan's size, you can put a one-seg tuner in a in a phone and watch TV on it, like you watch on a normal uh, you know, television. Whoa. So you had a whole range of phones here that had a little pop-out antenna. We would have it would have looked like a, a stylus to us, but the pop-out antenna, and you could watch TV on the bus, you know on your bus ride home or sitting at the coffee shop or wherever you might be. And that didn't really happen anywhere else. You know? So it's it's one example. The things like uh, emoji, right? So you know that word, right? Emoji. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a derivation of, of a Japanese word. Well, it's not a derivation. It's actually the Japanese word. The, you know, emo is emotion. And jiri means a writing system. So that's where it comes from. Uh, the Japanese sort of spawned that whole thing with using, they started out using uh, just normal punctuation. And, you know, there's this complexity, but I can't read it. Uh, I've been here for a while. But, um, and they still use it. And uh, so that sort of, you know, that popped up. The, the short messaging systems and, and things like that were, were huge here long before they were even available in, in, other, in the U.S., for example. Um, so the cultural... You know, specificity around that was just that there was nothing universal that really applied to the broader internet. Um, and you can see even now that, that Japan is still playing catch up. I mean, half, probably more than half, probably 70% of all government websites look like they were made in 2002. I mean, it's yeah. just that for the longest time, the internet was something on your phone. It wasn't. It wasn't something through a laptop or, or a computer. And the legacy of that is still here. So, you know, smartphones. And again, I'm I'm really simplifying it. But but smartphones are a great example. And that's why Apple, uh, the iPhone, has been the number one selling phone, not just smartphone, any phone in Japan for almost three years now. Whoa. Okay. Um, sure. So it outsells all the um, the Japanese models and. Now, you know, the, the Japanese are hopping on um, uh, the Android bandwagon and, and putting together their own stuff and pushing it out as, as much as they can. But uh, it's everywhere you go, everyone's got an iPhone here. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one example of how culture, geography also, and sort of, uh, you know, it's well known, Japan's historical isolationism. And that's that echoes even now. And so, if it wasn't broke, why why fix it? You know, their phones were advanced uh, for the increased smartphone, and they served all kinds of purposes. You know, mobile payments here. Mobile payments have been a big deal here for quite a while. So that was built into phones a long time ago. And that's not to say that it's completely penetrated the market, but those options were here. They weren't anywhere else in the world. So. So that's sort of, you know, one example of, of cultural differences of technology. And there's also the fax machine. That's a whole different story um, that, that's very interesting. It's still used. Uh, wow. Often. Yeah. Go, yeah, go figure. Yeah, that's, there's some, some domains, I guess, where you still see that in the U.S. And, and I know, well, that's really interesting about the smartphone thing. I mean, I, I suppose now thinking about it, it is curious that, you know, Apple kind of dominates it. Um, as much as they do, uh, but Japan, I I think in our minds, as you know, walkabout Americans who you know aren't exactly studying culture on a day to day basis, we we sort of assume Japan to be ahead of the curve with us technologically in many respects, particularly in robotics, which I think in fact is the case. 
How do you see those differences you were identifying a second ago kind of rolling forward into the future of where Japan will be ahead or behind, you know, where they're thinking about being ahead or behind or, you know, where they might already be? Well, in, in many fields, um, Japan is, is very, very far ahead of, of the rest of the world. Uh, the accident in, in uh, Fukushima made a very stark uh, sort of statement about how unready Japan was in one particular area, and that was you know, practic practical uh, rescue and recovery robots. Um, I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but uh, it was iRobot uh, packbots and the warrior robot that were the first into uh, the Fukushima disaster site. Whoa. And that was weeks and weeks and weeks after the accident. Japan had many different, uh, you know, different platforms in development, but it, it's sort of like, you know, where do you, where do you make the balance? Uh, you know, you can do all the preparation you want. What if it never happens? Or, you know, no one expected an earthquake of that magnitude at that time, obviously. So, but Japan did get a lot of heat on that, um, so to speak, because they had nothing, nothing that could go in there. And so iRobot sent over, um, uh, they sent over a pair of robots and a bunch of trainers, and it was, I, I don't recall exactly, it was three, three, four weeks before they could get any of, uh, any machines in there to load. Oh, so yeah, that was yeah. sort of an, an embarrassment for Japan as far as practical, um, application. Right, right. And of course the, the, the iRobot machines had already been deployed for, for 10 years at that point. Um, so that's, that's one exception. When it comes to social robotics, industrial robotics, um, things like that, uh, Japan is really, they really do still have um, the, the lion's share of the most advanced uh, uh, programs in, in the world, really. Um, a lot of times, you know, you hear about, oh, those crazy, weird uh, Japanese and all their weird, weird robots, and and on the surface, it kind of looks like that. I, I wrote about this earlier this year, that what we're looking at now, all these creepy, weird robots that the Japanese are making, well, it's because we don't, we're not really thinking it through. And what's in reality, they're just super advanced. Um, yeah. The, you mentioned uh, Professor um, Ishiguro. Yeah, his, yeah. Uh, yeah, his Geminoid series. Um, you know, there's no one else doing that in, in the world, and he's been doing it for years. And... Um, as far as a physical duplicate surrogate telepresence robot, nobody else is doing that. We've got teleoperated robots. You know, last week or uh, ten days back, there was the uh, the astronaut on the space station who was operating a robot on Earth, and, and vice versa. You've got NASA staff um, operating a robonaut uh, occasionally from from Earth, and that's all fine and good, and that's great, and you know that's remote control, but. To have an actual human surrogate, well, no one's doing that, um, uh, other than his lab, and he's also collaborated with some German researchers as well, who made, I don't know if you've seen it, the, the Geminoid DK, um, it's a it's a model of a, of a white man from a, a German research institute, and hmm. it's, it's, it's profound, it's, it's a stark resemblance um, in the movements and things like that. So, you know, Japan's got those things going on. Um, the other one that was very entertaining, I don't know if you heard about it um, around the end of last year, but uh, one researcher made a pair of uh, responsive, touch-responsive robotic butt cheeks. And 
if your if your gig is is being a smartass about technology on the internet, yeah, that's like that's money in the bank. Oh, that's you money right in the bank, man. Right, you can't even you can't do that one. Can't alone, fight that guy. Yeah, you gotta gotta go. Exactly. But the fact of the matter is, if we expect to have humanoid robots in the future, well, they're gonna need touchies. You know, I mean, it's it's not crude to say that they're gonna need those parts. And here's this Japanese guy, the only one in the world making those parts. So my joke was, you know, well, we all poke fun at him and call him weird. He's going to be laughing all the way to the bank with big piles of robot butt cheek money. So yeah, robot butt cheek dollars. Holy jeez. <laughs> He'll be rolling around in it. Right, totally. So, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff like that. Um, the thing that always comes up, and I, I won't talk about it too much because it's, pretty, it's been hammered pretty hard, that the Japanese seem so much more comfortable with with robotics and it, and it seems yeah. you know, the image of Japan is you know there's robots everywhere doing everything and, and it's justified to a certain degree you know I can't pull up the exact uh, statistics in uh, uh, at the moment but I do know that a plurality of all industrial robots are located in Japan which is a tiny fraction of the surface of the earth and a tiny, tiny fraction of human population Yet the bulk of industrial robots are located here, um, and that's an interesting thing. Um, uh, another uh, another point with uh, the robotics thing and sort of Japan's acceptance. I mean, there's two other points to it. Is you know, why the Japanese? And this is coming both from my analysis and statements of, of Japanese researchers themselves. Is that there is the Shinto influence in, in Japan. Japan is, uh, hmm. you ask the Japanese, the 80% of people will say they're not religious. Uh, Religious-based customs that are sort of uh, built into society. Uh, for example, in the United States, even an atheist who's surprised might say, oh, god damn. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Right, or, or Jesus, or you know something like that. It's sort of built into the culture. Well, Japan is very, very much like that as well. And the leftovers of, of Shinto, um, very roughly generalized, are that everything uh, has some sort of a life force. I wouldn't say spirit, but you know, a rock has a certain life force to it. And, and uh, you know, if you if you really break it down to uh, molecular physics, well, that's pretty much true. Um, so, but of course, they weren't thinking molecular physics when when, when the ideals of Shinto were being developed. But the point being that even a, a robotic creature, which looks so unfamiliar to us as Americans, perhaps, um, and so so foreign, and we have the idea of the uncanny valley, which mm -hmm. is actually a Japanese idea, um, the Japanese just tend to be more accepting of that. Um, things are given a certain reverence. Um, when I say things, I just mean uh, the physical items around us. and. So there's a bit of a Shinto influence on that, very generally speaking. The other thing is that that uh, Japanese has a history of of animatronic slash robotic puppetry. Um, ah, I was unaware anything. of that. Yeah, the the oldest example are puppets. They're called karakuri. Uh, it's C K A R A K U R I karakuri. And these were sort of animatronic uh, puppets. Some moved, actually, autonomously hundreds and hundreds of years ago in Japan, used in, in theater. Um, 
there are other such puppets. There's a form of uh, theater called Boondocku, uh, which is B-U-N-R-A-K-U. And it also uses a certain amount of, uh, of puppetry um, to bring to life inanimate characters in a, in a performance. Now, that's not to say that uh, Western theater hasn't had that as well, but it's just been much more of a part of uh, entertainment and, and dramatic presentation here in Japan. So the idea of a talking robot that can interact with people isn't quite as foreign here as it might be in, in some Western countries. Interesting. Yeah, I was unaware of that, uh, the history in theater and how that might kind of play yeah, its way into moving forward. It plays a role. And, and the, the last thing I would mention about that as far as robotics are concerned is, again, there's, a, there's such a strong sense of cultural um, homogeneity here. Um, yeah. Everyone has this sort of same history, this sort of same ideas. And of course, I'm broadly generalizing, but it's broadly justified as well. Um, it's just about geography and, and media saturation. And, and everyone sort of, you know, they tend to have a, a group mind about things. It's yeah. not to say that there isn't dissent, but generally speaking, uh, in particular compared to the U.S., it's much more of a, of a group mind. So that manifests itself in that if a majority of people say, ah, you know, robots are okay, and a majority of people will kind of think that, and eventually it'll, it'll be sort of the dominant, um, the dominant sort of uh, opinion about, about the issue. And um, the, I guess one last point would be that Japan's sort of, you know, post-war rise uh, depended a lot on, uh, on robotics. The, the, technically, the first industrial robot was invented in the United States, and uh, three years after it was on the market, uh, it was licensed uh, to a Japanese company. And I'm sorry, but I should know, but the name of the company is a very large company. It may have been uh, Kawasaki, actually. Um, we think of them in the U.S. as making you know some nice uh, motorbikes, but, but they're a big industrial player here, of course. Um, but they licensed the technology and then just ran with it. So... Huh. Auto, you know, factory automation and robotic manufacturing was huge here long before anywhere else in the world, and that was a big, that was a big part of Japan's sort of, you know, meteoric economic rise. And of course, it rose into a bubble and then it burst. But it still created, you know, arguably the world's most advanced integrated capitalist society, you know, ever. Yeah. Uh, so, so robotics played a big, a big role in that. Um, and you see it, you know that. Little things. You get in a taxi and the door opens for you. You don't touch the door. When you get in and out of the taxi, the, the driver either has a, a manipulator or has a, but, a button and it opens robotically when you get in. So you don't touch the door. Um, the, we have robotic parking garages in the U.S., of course, but they're much more common here. You, know, you drive in, it flips your car around, takes it up, and, and off it goes. And you, you, know, you come back, give them your number, and, and the, the giant building-sized robot uh, gives your car back to you. So um, there's just a greater, uh, there's a greater prevalence, a greater sort of penetration of, of robotics into the psyche here, uh, very, very generally speaking. No, that's, that's cool to hear a little bit about the cultural 
sort of uh, impetus and, and origin there. Uh, I think yeah. whether from a business perspective or just a technology perspective, it's cool to see where the heck this stuff comes from. And I know another one of the topics that you're not only writing a lot about, but you know, delving into research and involve with Lifeboat and other places is sort of the 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 force of technology as a force of change and even down you know down the line of the transhumanist and posthumanism um, side of things and I know I've had the good fortune to be able to speak with a lot of folks whether it's in robotics or um, life extension Aubrey de Grey people like that um, what do you see as someone who's been involved in the field and maybe has a little bit of a, a different background as opposed to what's being developed what do you see as maybe some of these first transitions that might bring us beyond our normal human potential. I'm, I'm familiar with your series on your website called uh, Transhuman uh, Transhuman Test Pilots, which I, which I think is really cool. And I'm curious as to where do you see those first steps really happening? I, I actually, this is this is a place where I run into a little bit of difficulty with, with hardcore transhumanists because so I'll give you an example. You know, in uh, 2001, when the uh, the proto pre-human, the primate, that finally gets the bone and figures out it can smash stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's the first step. So we're not in first steps right now. We're oh, yeah, no, I would I would agree you as know? well. That's that's a notion yeah. that's been juggled around a ton. I mean, hey, exactly. I just I just drank coffee this morning, so I enhanced myself. I'm talking to you on Skype. So, right. yes, yeah, certainly, but I mean, uh, the, the way I was explaining, I was talking to a philosopher in Australia yesterday about this topic. The way I try to explain it, maybe just to make myself clear, is is um, if, you know, hypothetically, if you take a child from, let's say, 200 years ago, you take another one from 2,000 years ago, you take another one from 4,000 years ago, and you put them all in the same crib right now, and you raise them, yeah, generally speaking, I mean, they gotta, they're going to be able to do the same stuff. I mean, you know, they crawl around, you know, uh, throw up and stuff like that. I mean, it's the same general capacities are not inherently um, you know, with within themselves, inherently more certainly, capable. Certainly. Yeah. So I guess I guess I'll start with that as sort of the framework. But yeah. yes, I do I do agree I, with I, you. Yeah, I get what, what you're what you're saying, and, and um, I, I drag it back because um, what I have a problem with, I think, and I would consider I wouldn't consider myself a transhumanist per se. Per se, yeah, me neither. I yep. Think, I think transhumanism is 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 fascinating. I think it's same thing certain, here. It's a certain destiny uh, of sorts. And it's something that's been going on a long, long time. And it starts out with simple tool use, and it's you know, it's uh, here we are speaking over this um, bizarre global network of, of I mean, not speaking into it wirelessly. Ultimately, it's a it's a physical network going up to the Pacific, and, and um, something unimaginable to people within the past forty years. Yeah, if not less, you know. The difference now, I think, in our ongoing sort of march beyond our biology, yes, is that things are happening so much faster now, and that's the that's the the interesting thing about about right now. Um, in as much as I like to joke and, and be a little snarky and, and a little, uh, <laughs> I like to inject a, a little levity into my into my work. I also take the the idea of uh, technology as a social force very seriously. And not to be overly reductionist about it, but as far as I'm concerned, technology is the only social force because it is a precursor to to everything, to to society, to agriculture, to reading, to writing, to to all of that. 
none of what we have as, as a society is possible without technology. And when I when I speak to lay people, I often run into that that sort of boundary. They're like, oh, you mean your smartphone? And I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the wooden chair you're sitting on, you know, the 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 car you're driving in, your your polyester pants that are made from oil, you know, all, all of it. that is 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 a manifestation of our technology. So I, I do get a little criticism for being a really reductionist and sort of derivative, but the fact of the matter is technology is the precursor for all civilization. So I see in my overarching perspective in my technological smartassery uh, is, uh, <laughs> is that it is the most fundamental thing we're doing. So pulling that into transhumanism, of course, it's you know the wild, widely believed notion that you know I suppose the two dominating camps of thought are that we will either merge physically, actually physically merge um, with the technology, or or we will transcend our flesh entirely. I suppose that a third camp would be just you know biological reengineering, um, but uh, you know ultimately that's a, a merger with technology in some way, shape, well. or form. Yeah. 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 So I I think. You know, as is obviously the case on the frontier of the future, there's no more exciting time to be alive than now. But um, <laughs> the thing about now is that is that um, well, everything is subject to advances in, in computational science, and that's the big, big paradigm change that's that's we're undergoing now. And so, to to use my concept of the the transhumanist transhumanist or transhumanism test pilots. Um, of course, it's uh, it's uh, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek sort of joking thing, but but also the fact of the matter is is that if you take a, a disabled person who is using a, a wheelchair, for example, I have a series of jokes on my website making fun of the wheelchair and you know down down with the wheelchair. Let's let's throw the wheelchairs away and put everyone in a in a you know an exoskeleton powered by their thoughts. It's much better for the human body to be upright, et cetera, et cetera. So I sort of joke about that. But the fact of the matter is that disabled people now who are benefiting from this extremely rapidly advancing technology, they're seeing the beginnings, in my opinion, what they're seeing are the beginnings of future human enhancement. There's going to come a point where, um, and I'm not the first by any means to, to to mention this or bring it up, where the disabled will actually be the unenhanced, and that that actually is a is a, a line of thought that gets a lot of um, gets a lot of attention. And also brings up uh, very sticky issues of, of class and wealth difference. You know, yep. if, if if the non-enhanced become the truly disabled, um, what if we're still operating on uh, laissez-faire capitalism at that time? certain class is, is going to get that advancement and the rest of us will be disabled. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. It sort of it seems sort of hinted at with uh, uh, Neil Blomkamp's new film coming out on Friday, uh, uh, Elysium, where he's clearly got it set up where there's um, the rich are up on the station, the poor are down on the ground, and the rich have all the good technology. So, What's the title of that, that film there, just so I can jot it down? Yeah, it's a Elysian. Elysian, okay. Yeah, the director is Neil Blomkamp. He's a South African guy. Uh, he directed. Um, he's done a lot of commercials with different animated robotics as a as a director, and uh, then he did uh, Alive in Joburg, 
which was a short film, which pretty much got him uh, green-lighted to make District 9, which was another sort of uh, dystopian, not dystopian, it wasn't that far in the future, I guess, but uh, but uh, clearly not a, a positive uh, outlook on the future. But back to the, the transhumanism test pilots thing, I, I saw it, an early hint of it, um, after the Boston uh, bombings earlier this year, um, uh, during the marathon, there was a few weeks after, there was a story on a woman who, she had her hand severely injured. Um, I believe a nerve was severed and, and destroyed to a point where uh, they could keep the hand, she could keep it, um, but she would have little to no control over the hand. And um, so while she would be anatomically, uh, she would appear anatomically just fine, she you know, lose the usage, and she opted for amputation in anticipation of a more advanced prosthetic. And I thought that was a, it didn't get a lot of coverage, and I wanted to write about it, I didn't myself, but um, I thought it was a very interesting little piece of, uh, a little step, a little step where this woman actually opted to have her physical, biological arm removed uh, because she knew there was a better prosthetic out there, or there would soon be. Um, that's an interesting step, and I think what that hints at, uh, as opposed to the, the non-enhanced being the disabled, uh, and that sort of line of thought, is at a certain point down the road, my perfect vision, my perfect biological vision, for example, I may not want to keep that. If I can get an implant, if I can get a bionic eye, to speak in very vague general terms, um, that will allow me to see different parts of the, of the spectra and um, I can zoom and I can record and I can live stream and I can charge pay-per-view to watch what I do with my life, you know, something like that. The, the possibilities go on and on. Oh, yeah. Well, what's the motivation to keep my, my biological parts? Where is it, uh, aside from a, a biological um, pure, purist? I guess yeah, like a reverence, a reverence for biology in and of itself. Right. And I think we'll see that. I think we'll see. Oh, I think we already do. Yeah, yeah. And despite the fact that um, we're all of us, all of us already enhanced by technology all the time, that it's not yet merged with our bodies gives us a certain comfort. But that's not so far away. Um, no, not at all. And where? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Where Where do you see some of those initial transitions? I mean, obviously, we've got. Uh, some pretty advanced prosthetics at this point. We've got, um, uh, you know, deep brain stimulation. We've got things going. I uh, forget the, forget the name of the the child there who recently got that surgery to sort of medically implant the the capacity to hear, which goes far beyond the cochlear implant to kind of almost like a kind of android capacity in some way, shape, right. or form. I think that again, the transition is already happening. It's it's. But for most of us, you know, we don't have enough metal in us to, I guess, get nervous. I think we'll probably get over that. Where do you see those first steps, um, presumably in terms of, you know, what, where that, where that, whether it's the merger will happen or the, the overcoming of biology will happen? Where do you kind of see the forefront there? I definitely see it on, on the physical side. I think that the neurological side of things and the, you know, de messing with our nervous system, I think that that's going to be a much more frightening thing for, for people. But, um, generations, 
you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old, so, you know, generations previous to mine and further back, they're going to be a little sketched out about it. Oh, yeah. But I was, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, uh, yeah, I, I bet they will. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I was two years old when Star Wars was released, and I saw Luke Skywalker's, uh, you know, robotic hand, and I saw people living with, you know, uh, day in, day out with, with uh, robotics and, and uh, this sort of uh, cyborg capabilities. And, and my generation has sort of grown up seeing that generation after mine, um, more so the generation after that, more so. Uh, so I think the physical enhancements will, will definitely be the, that'll be the forefront. Um, it's, it's going to be, you know, this woman opting for a, a prosthetic hand, the, uh, people who are confined to a wheelchair instead of opting for an exoskeleton, mind-controlled exoskeleton suit. I mean, that would be far less, if you think about it, once people get used to the idea, someone walking around, actually walking, actually employing ideal locomotion is far less jarring than someone rolling around in a wheelchair. Because how do I deal with that? You know, I don't, I don't deal with, with people in a wheelchair on a day-to-day basis, and most people do not. So when encountered by that, it's a little uncomfortable. If I encountered someone walking, uh, physically enhanced by some sort of exoskeletal suit, well, then that's uh, it's different. Okay, I see that, but it's it's actually less jarring. Um, and so I think you know we'll see things like that. And I think uh, you know Ray Kurzweil talks about this a lot about how the advancements will be invisible. It will be things we we don't even know that, that people have. Um, you know, you've been talking to me now for 50 minutes, but you don't know that I have a certain uh, enhancement as well, uh, which I do, uh, actually, too. Uh, no one would know if they saw me walking down the street. Um, it's, it's internal. And so it's, well, where do we see the steps? They're already here, of course, but, you know, given, given the advancement of technology, how things are moving, we're going to see a lot more of it. And I think we'll see it in the physicality of our own bodies to a certain degree, but I also think we'll see it, uh, we'll have to read about it, actually. I don't think a lot of it we will see. A lot of it will be, will sort of be seamless with, with our bodies. And, and I think that'll ease people, uh, ease people's worries to a certain degree, um, that it is more of a, uh, uh, a subtle merger, visually subtle, I would say, uh, physically and, and conceptually profound, uh, more visually subtle. So I think that's sort of, sort of how things. Are the New England going. Acura dealers are proud sponsors. Holy goodness. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, and and I think, I I was at a who was the I can't remember the fellow's name now, but at the 2045 conference, there was a fellow with one of the more the more advanced robotic hands um, who was speaking on that same tip how. You know, in in many respects, you know, keeping keeping something mangled for the sake of, uh, you know, reverence that it is your hand is something that a lot of people would probably bail on if they had the ability to use it or something that could do a better job. So those and those transitions that you had mentioned are a lot less dangerous than the tinkering with the mind. Um, onto onto that topic, I suppose is one of the last questions I like to ask everybody that I'm lucky enough to be able to interview. Um, there's always so many different perspectives. So you had mentioned, you know, you, you differ in many regards from some of the more hardcore transhumanists, um, you know, and there's some people that really do have a very thorough emphasis on purely biological 
notions of bettering human life and, and extending human life and things like that. Um, and there's so many different approaches to each and every one. Um, despite all of our different opinions, presumably, you know, pretty much everybody I've talked to and presumably most of the people doing research, no matter what their inkling or their leaning, they're aiming to bring about an aggregately better human future for us in some way, shape, or form. H how do you think we can go about doing that as a global society despite all of our differences of opinion? So that's a that's an immense question. I feel woefully uh, unqualified to answer as a, <laughs> as a professional internet uh, uh, smartass. But um, <laughs> I, I agree with the you know the broad the broad ideas. Well, what's what's the purpose of all of this? I mean, is it just technology for technology's sake? I mean, are we just trying to to segue everything? And when I say segue, I mean the product. Um, Technologically, the segue is awesome. What amazing technology! Practically, it's useless. What do you do with that? You know, I've seen some great videos of the Korean uh, army training with the segue. Uh, that was that was pretty cool. Other than that, what do you do? Um, so, it's great to have a purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, we want to better the human condition. Um, but it's important to to think about. I, in my opinion, it's important to think about for for who, and how do we how do we go about distributing that and, and, and can we and should we um, but I think I see in, in a broader in a broader perspective on technology not necessarily transhumanism exclusively but but um, everyone likes to, to you know to, to scream and cry that the sky's falling and, and the world is it's getting so bad and, and all these things are going wrong in the world and, and most serious uh, researchers and students of technology know that that's the that's the, the worst fallacy perpetrated uh, upon humanity ever. Um, pretty much is that the, that the mass media has ever successfully done as a, as a drive towards ratings. Because if you look at real numbers across the board, humanity is doing so much better than we ever have by long shots. It's it's beyond profound. Um, if you look at the rates of, of war, death, disease, starvation, murder, slavery, all of these different these different factors combined, and in my opinion, it's all due to technological advancement. Um, so as we bring that toward, <clears throat> we bring that notion of transhumanism into that. Well, we've got you know over seven billion humans on the planet, and who's going to get to be transhuman? You know, so. I think we have to think about that as, as we develop these technologies. Obviously, we're not going to have 7 billion uh, transhumanists running around. Um, and that's it's something that uh, the hardcore transhumanists, which I see as just more contrarians more than anything else, um, uh, that, that it doesn't get addressed very often. Yeah, transhumanism is great. And let's do that. Let's improve our bodies. Let's improve our minds. Let's not die. About that, great. Yeah. That. But there's seven billion other souls to think about on the on the planet. So, so what uh, is it really an altruistic goal that the people are, are interested in, or that they're driving towards? Um, can transhumanism as a movement, which it's trying really hard to be, I don't know that that's going to blossom into anything other than a, a category on a on a technology website. But um, you know. How do we apply that broadly, and then how do we use it for the betterment of uh, humanity? And I think 
it's uh, it's a concept I'm working on. It's it's a um, I haven't really talked about this publicly, but I'm working on a a, a short book called uh, Trickle Down Techonomics, and um, it's based you know it's a play on, on trickle down economics, but the difference between the two is that trickle down techonomics actually works, and uh, what it means basically is you know large scale tech investment has massive 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 returns um, as it trickles down to the rest of the economy. And I think that applying that sort of concept to transhumanist technologies will will ultimately serve uh, humanity the best. And again, I'm I'm, I'm really you know unqualified. To, yeah, well, I think everybody is. I mean, it's too interdisciplinary. You know, it, it, it's too interdisciplinary it, for anybody to particularly yeah, be the expert. Yeah, but I think for for my particular perspective, as a as sort of um, given that it's the technology is is the social force of humanity. Um, I think we're moving towards a general sense of well-being for everyone. Yeah, there's horrible, terrible things happening in the world, and that's never going to change. There's always going to be some of that. But the point is there's so much less of it, especially if you think per capita. It's just profound. Um, there's so much less of it, and the trend is toward development. And as as countries and populations develop their populations do that as far as their numbers are concerned that does stabilize and does decline <laughs> and um that's something that's very very important in japan right now and, and uh, didn't really have a chance to go into that but it's a huge deal with uh, with robotics and things like that but but i think we yeah i know that's a it's a sort of a babbling rambling um <laughs> it's not what happens sometimes yeah but i think you know population will stay this projected to stabilize about 10 billion and then, and then either stabilize or decline, and most likely it'll decline. Um, so in a trickle-down sense, I think what we're developing now is, is transhumanist technologies, enhancements, concepts. Um, I think that will trickle down for the betterment of humanity, but we've got to have those people standing in the corner raising their hands and saying, okay, that's all great, it's all fine, I'm glad you've got a new robot hand. But what about everyone else? So keeping keeping checks on things with regards to, you know, n not just nifty innovation, but the overall perspective of moving humanity forward rather than just particular. So kind of kind of keeping keeping an anchored view there Sorry. on aggregate well-being. Okay, got it. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we in effect already have a technological elite, and that's pretty much uh, you know, it's. If you think, well, who's the technological elite? Well, the lines go right down parallel with developed countries and, and those who have money, those those who have resources to to purchase the technology. So, I think we want to we want to keep a keen eye on that and, and not not create an us versus them. If if transhumanism is to be successful as a process, as a concept, as a movement, then it has to be carefully watched that that there isn't a Strong sense of division that develops between the haves and the have-nots, and I don't actually. I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it. I think it'll be fine, but uh, I'm happy that there are those people. I wouldn't consider myself one of them, but there are there are those people standing up and saying, "Hey, it's great that we can do this. Should we? And for who?" Yes. Uh, so having kind of a uh, an, an emphasis on really applying wisdom as we move forward, kind of as you had said, the guy in the corner raising his hand, and hopefully through your work and hopefully if we can spread these conversations we can do a little bit of that ourselves so 
Reno, I, I hope so. Yeah, oh. and I hope my, my smart ass can reach people who are sort of outside the technology choir. I mean, obviously, you yeah. and I can talk about this all day long, but the average person going to work also needs to understand it. So that's where I hope to, to reach people with uh, with these concepts is sort of getting a foot in the door with, uh, with being a little less hardcore serious about all of it. Big time. Cool. And Reno, I more than appreciate you taking the hour to be able to share your thoughts. Um, and I look forward to catching up soon, my man. I think we had a great talk today. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's nice to talk to you. It's an honor to, to speak to you. You're, you're definitely talking to someone who's on the, uh, the low end trying to work his way up. Uh, it's an interesting perspective watching from down here. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm very honored to speak with you. I'm very honored to, to share my perspective and, and my, my ideas. I, I, I'm woefully underqualified, but, uh, but I like to think of myself as a bridge uh, between the, the everyday person and, and, and those like yourself or uh, the Aubrey de Grays, the, the Kurzweils, the, the, the serious thinkers. Uh, we need to have a connection between those two groups. So it's an honor to, to speak with you about that and, and continue my sort of pursuit of being a, a smart ass on the Internet about <laughs> technology for money and uh, sharing these concepts with a broader audience. Awesome, man. Now I'm glad we were able to catch up. Cool. So that was an interview right there, my man. We just did it. All right. Cool. Um, so, and as a, as a side, hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>